0: What's up TRP, how are you guys doing? I just wanted to say right off the bat that I miss you. Uh, My family misses you. We miss being in the same space as you. We miss having church service together. I miss preaching to an audience of people. This is still weird. Week two, I'm in my son's old bedroom that is now our impromptu studio and I am preaching to no one. We miss singing songs together with you, which you might be thinking, hey, Josh, are we gonna start off with a couple of hymns? No, I thought that since Tessa's announcement video, where she was singing about all the things that we're doing, went so well, you guys seemed to freak out and love it, that I thought that I could sing a sermon about you. Farewell Discourse. But I'm not going to do that. Instead, Tessa, hit him with the intro. The first half of John's Gospel retells stories and signs that take place over three years of Jesus' ministry in the first century. The second half of the Gospel, more or less, focuses on Jesus' last week, and a large portion of that is set on the night that he was betrayed. In this part of the spiritual Gospel, we will explore what scholars have named the Farewell Discourse. It is a large block of teaching set on the night before the crucifixion. In the story, it sort of functions as Jesus's last lecture to his disciples. He tries to prepare them for what's to come. He gives them some final instructions and he encourages them to wait and trust. And even though this teaching is firmly embedded in a remote culture in the distant past, many of its themes remain relevant for us today. Join us as we consider the farewell discourse. Our text for today is from the book of John, chapter 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 16, where Jesus is saying to his disciples, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Then some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying to us, A little while, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. They said, what does he mean by this, a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, are you discussing among yourselves what I meant when I said a little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On that day, you will ask nothing of me, Very truly, I tell you, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be complete. The word of God for the people of God. I am hopeful that wherever you were sitting, that you just belted out, thanks be to God, that would make my day. Report back, let me know. Now, in this set of texts, scholars differ on how to divide not only the verses we're looking at, but the entire chapter, in fact. Uh, One scholar, Raymond Brown, says, as chapter 16 now stands, there can be little doubt that the final editor of the book thought of John 16, 4b through the end of the chapter in verse 33, he thought of that as as a whole and that therefore in distinguishing between the parts of 4b through 15 and 16 through 33, that we are distinguishing between two parts within a whole rather than between two independent subdivisions. Do you catch what he's saying here? He's saying this is all connected from John 16, four, all the way through the end of the chapter, and scholars are sort of arbitrarily, well, that's a bit of an overstatement, not arbitrarily, but they're they're differing on where they're placing their dividing markers throughout this teaching. Uh, In fact, in John 16, 16 through 24, which is the passage that we read, there's hooks back to John 16, 4 through 15, and there's hooks forward to John 16, 25 through 33. I thought this would be a good way for us to teach through the the whole passage without having to go verse by verse. uh, because in our text, Jesus is talking about a lot of the same themes that he's announced already in this discourse. He says, I'm going away, and you won't see me for a little bit, but then you will see me again, and your your joy will be complete. You're gonna experience great joy. And this is something that Jesus has said uh, in the previous verses, and, and we'll say again, he keeps enunciating that he is leaving. The disciples, meanwhile, have absolutely no idea what he's talking about. In fact, we have this this interchange in verses 17 and 18 where they're just saying to one another, what's he talking about? What does he mean by saying to us that a little while and you're not gonna see me, and then again a little while and you will see me. What does he mean by that? And what does he mean when he says, because I'm going to the Father? What's he talking about? And then they continue to say, what's he mean by a little while? What's What's that time reference in regard to? What We don't know what he's saying. And N.T. Wright notes that this sort of proves Jesus's point from earlier in the passage, I believe this is in verse 12, where he says to his disciples, I still have many things that I wanna say to you, but you can't bear them now. You can't handle them, you can't understand them. Perhaps he might be saying, you can't handle the truth. Our tendency is to think that these guys are idiots, to think that if we were in their place that we would understand what it is that Jesus is saying because it makes so much sense. And when we think this way, we're sort of privileging where we are and forgetting where the disciples are. We have the advantage of hindsight. We know how this story concludes. We know that when Jesus says, in a little bit of time, you're not going to see me, because we know that in a matter of hours, Jesus is going to die. Remember, Judas has left. He's alerted the authorities. Jesus' betrayal Uh, by the Jewish religious leaders is so close to happening. His trial in front of Pilate and his eventual crucifixion and death and burial, it's so close to happening in this story that we're thinking, yeah, okay, we, we get it. In a little while, the disciples won't see you, but then Jesus goes on, and then in a little while, you will see me again. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because we know that Jesus will be raised from the dead on the third day. We know that His death is not the end of the story. We know that he'll appear to his disciples again. We know how the story ends. But the disciples, they're trying to piece all this together on the fly. And this isn't part of their worldview. Remember, we've talked about this a lot. No one was expecting the Messiah to die. No one had categories for that. Because when the Messiah died, that means that he lost. That means that he wasn't the Messiah. That means that the people that were following him bet on the wrong horse. The disciples, they they couldn't make sense of Jesus saying, I'm going away because in their understanding of the world, Messiahs don't go away. Messiahs conquer. Messiahs usher in the kingdom. Messiahs bring the reign of God to the world. They don't go away and then come back. And to be fair, Jesus hasn't really told the disciples, at least in the book of John, what he is talking about. It's it's in code. It's, I'm going away and then I'm coming back. Now, he does tell them quite clearly in the synoptic gospels, which are, remember, what books? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Excellent. I know that you were right on top of that. He does tell them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they don't get it there either. We've got passages like Mark chapter 8, which reads in verse 31 Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Even the author of Mark, he's saying that this is all happening very openly and very clearly. But Peter has no concept for these categories that Jesus is talking about, death and resurrection. It doesn't make sense given who they believe Jesus is. So Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. In response, Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples, then he rebukes Peter and says, "'Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind "'not on divine things but on human things.'" Can you imagine this rebuke? at the lips of Jesus towards his disciples and towards Peter. But Peter, again, doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about because it doesn't make sense in the time frame in which Peter is living. We have a similar passage in the very next chapter in the book of Mark, chapter nine, where it says in verse 30 that they went on from there and they passed through Galilee. I imagine this is talking about Jesus and his disciples. He, Jesus, did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. Mark again addresses this by saying, but they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask. You think? Uh, a chapter earlier, he's just called Peter Satan. Uh, that's not really the warmest invitation to uh, asking questions. Teachers, professors, if if this is your MO and you want to inspire people to have good, lively conversation, don't call them Satan. That's That's a pro tip. I think you can just tuck that one away in your back pocket for a rainy day during a Zoom meeting, in John it continues, uh, and it says that Jesus knows that his disciples they want to ask him these questions. Remember, they're off to the side and they're saying, "What is it? Ta- what's he talking about?" A little while, and he's leaving. He's coming back. We have no idea what's happening here. Jesus is very perceptive to the needs of the people around him. He can read the room. Uh, so I think scholars would say that this shows like that Jesus can not only intuit, but he knows the thoughts of people. And I would just say that that might be true, but it's also probably true that if you're in a room with your closest people and you see them kind of shuffling off to the side and they're talking to to one another, that you, you know what they're thinking. You know what they're wanting to be addressed, especially when you've just said something that's super provocative. And I don't mean that to diminish what Jesus knows and what he doesn't know. I just mean that Jesus is perceptive and he's he's playing into that in this story. He knows that they're wanting him to address these things, but they're maybe afraid to ask him. So he continues and he says, Very truly I tell you, you're going to weep. You're going to mourn. The world is going to rejoice. Remember, Jesus in previous passages, in fact in the text we looked at last week, is is using this divide between the followers of Jesus and the world and now with the death of Jesus, the world is going to rejoice. The people that were um, antithetic to his message and to his teaching and to his movement, they're going to rejoice when they learn that he is dead. You, Jesus says, you, my disciples, you're going to have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. And to convey this point, Jesus gets a little bit eschatological. He gets a little bit funky, a little bit apocalyptic, and he starts using some images that really play into this, uh, let's say, end-of-world sort of uh, ideas and images. He starts bringing in concepts of Kingdom, and bringing in concepts of um, God's movement, which people were expecting to finally reach its climax. And Jesus uses a common prophetic image of childbirth. Now, the way that he uses this, as we'll see, is he talks about the pains of childbirth, and then once the child is born, those pains uh, they are alleviated and pain and mourning and suffering turns in to joy. I'm not gonna touch that one with a 10 foot pole because I have no concept. I was in the room when Kate gave birth to our two beautiful boys and, and I can maybe speak to the fact that there was a, a moment of, of joy upon their arrival, but I'm not gonna talk about what it's like to birth children because I don't necessarily know Not even not necessarily, I don't know. Jesus uh, is playing into this and he says, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. This is important language that Jesus comes back to because he always talks about his own hour. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you too, disciples, you have pain now but I will see you again. It's like there's this uh, delivery process. You're going to go through this pain, but at some point it is going to to change and morph into joy. Your hearts, he says, will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Craig Keener in his two-volume commentary on John, he says that the biblical prophets, they employed birth pangs as an image of extreme anguish. And in Jewish literature, these birth pangs came to illustrate a period of intense suffering immediately preceding the end. This is why I say that Jesus is getting a little bit eschatological, a little bit apocalyptic, because some of these images, they're associated not just with childbirth, but with the end. He goes on to say, as the final sufferings, they illustrate giving birth to a new world. Here too, he says, the birth pangs are eschatological, except that they relate to the realized eschatology inaugurated among believers through Jesus' resurrection. I know, I know, I know, guilty as charged, that is a bunch of nerdy, almost nonsense that doesn't make much uh, real sense to us as we're trying to understand what's going on. And the best way that I have to describe this is, it's happening. Downtown Salisbury, it's happening. It's something that people have been waiting for, and now, even with the hashtag, it's something that is taking place. Now, downtown right now is a bit of a mess because of all of the construction, but soon it's going to be uh, lively and beautiful, and it's going to be welcoming. It's not something that is in the future so much as it is something that's happening Now, So for scholars, when they're talking about Jesus and his message of of the end, it's kind of like two phases here. For some people, as they talk about Jesus and his realized eschatology, that means that his death and his resurrection, they mean something now. They change things now. It completely transforms the world now. Now, there is a bit of future eschatology where it's saying that there is a movement continuing where God's kingdom will be brought to bear on earth, finally. But what John wants us to see and what John wants his disciples, uh, what wants the disciples to see in this passage is that it's also something that's happening here and now and it's being realized N.T. Wright says, these are extraordinary and cataclysmic events, talking about the death and resurrection and even the ascension of Jesus, the like of which, he says, the world has never seen before. The disciples can hardly prepare for them, but Jesus wants to warn them anyway. It's all happening because with Jesus' death and resurrection, a new world, Wright says, the new world, is indeed being born. Everything is changing and Jesus is attempting to prepare his disciples for the next 72 hours, for the next few days when they will endure the trial, the crucifixion, and the, the days of silence and waiting and then the resurrection of Jesus. He's attempting to prepare them for this. So you may have pain now, he says, but I will see you again. I will be back and your hearts, they will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Or as he says later on, at the very end of chapter 16, he says, I have said this to you, all of this, all of this teaching from John 14 through 16, I've said all of this so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, it says in the NRSV, but take courage, I have conquered the world. Or what might be more familiar language to many of you Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what does this mean for us? I've made this confession before. Sometimes I feel like the conclusions of these sermons, I I do so much preparation getting us to this point and and then when we get here, it's like, and I sort of feel like that, Today, because what we've just talked about, Jesus in in this room with his disciples, like pouring out his heart, trying to get them to anticipate what's about to happen, them not understanding and him coming back to, to finally try to reiterate all of his points. Listen, I'm gonna die. I'm, I'm going away. I will come back. And when I come back, you will have joy it won't make things easy for you. You still will have persecution and trouble and and worry probably, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What seems to be communicated to us are, are similar truths. Our context has changed dramatically. As we talked about last week, we, we probably don't risk persecution in the sense of us sacrificing our lives for the things that we believe in in the same way that the disciples were facing losing their lives for the things that they believe in. But we do have trouble. We do have things that affect us. And the message of Jesus at the end of this passage, it's its the same for us. In this world you will have trouble and, and worry and persecutions of sorts, but I have overcome the world. The the real question is, what do we do with that? Now, in the midst of a global pandemic, I have seen people taking a bit of liberties with these sorts of promises. Namely, um, we've seen churches that are still holding services because they claim that Jesus will protect them. We've seen people sort of using their faith as an excuse not to follow CDC guidelines of safety. We've seen Christians sort of um, move towards an understood invincibility because of who Jesus is and the relationship that they have with them and the eternity that they believe is, is theirs. And that's definitely not what this passage is about. Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, listen, my death will change everything. And maybe even more than that, my resurrection will change everything. A new world is being born through these cataclysmic, events and Jesus to his disciples and Jesus to us, I I want to invite you into that. I want you to become a part of this new world. I want you to leave the past behind and I want you to be everything that you were created to be, I want you to be uh, a, a servant. I want you to be an agent of peace and hope and restoration and love and forgiveness. I want you to be someone who lives in this new era with me. I want you to be a recipient of all of the good things that my death and my resurrection bring to bear on the world. In other words, I want you to live in the kingdom knowing that Jesus has vanquished the enemies. Now again, that doesn't mean that we will be without trial and that we will be without pain and suffering. Remember that realized and that final eschatology. We haven't reached this final phase of the kingdom coming to earth, but we are part of bringing the kingdom of God to earth here and now. And even in the midst of a global pandemic, that is something that we can continue to work towards. The way that we relate to our family, the way that we we relate to our friends, the way that we celebrate birthdays by just driving our cars by people's homes, the way that we send gift cards uh, to, or, or we, Uh, just help local businesses or, or the way that we continue to minister to people who within the walls of their home, they're lonely, they're sad, they're hurt, they're scared. And the way that we communicate with them, we can become an image of bringing the kingdom and bringing heaven to earth here and now. We can be the bearers of the message of Jesus, take heart, I have overcome the world even while we are quarantined in our homes. I'm hopeful that as followers of Jesus, we can come around to understanding what Jesus was saying. There's going to be pain, and then there's going to be joy. There's going to be this, and then there's going to be that, and that is going to be good. Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, has changed everything. It's allowing us to become participants of this beautiful work of restoration. We come back to this often, and I'm hopeful that it still holds weight for us, even while we're in our homes, wondering about what the next day or week or month will bring. Perhaps we can still hold fast to these truths, that joy is ours in abundance because Jesus has overcome the world. Now in this story as well, the disciples, they didn't get it and the thing that helps them to get it, in fact, in the the latter verses, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit shows up, the Spirit will help you to understand all of these things. And again, as Christians, we have the spirit of the living Christ in us, leading us, guiding us, motivating us, encouraging us, blessing us. May we, regardless of circumstance, regardless of trial and struggle, regardless of our inner emotions and anxieties, may we take steps through the spirit towards our continued belief that while we do have troubles, take heart as Jesus has overcome the world.